You're listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Neighbors and Nations. I'm Todd Stiles. Thank you for joining me today. I have the privilege of sharing with you an interview that I conducted with Noah Oldham. Noah is the Senior Director of Deployment for the North American Mission Board and the SIN Network, a young man that God's got his hand on, no doubt. I first met Noah at a few SIN Network events, but I became more closely associated with him uh, when I invited him to uh, lead a preaching seminar for us at our church for local pastors, and then he preached on the following day at our church. And I got to tell you, just a, a fantastic communicator of God's truth, committed to uh, textual accuracy and yet congregational relevance and application. And uh, boy, this really comes through loud and clear in his work there as pastor of August Gate Church, uh, but also in his work with Sin Network and just in his heart for both missions and evangelism, just all of that mixed together. You can get a sense of of Noah's passion for making sure that that we're true to the text, uh, staying true to God's word, God's heart, and yet um, culturally trying to make sure that that we're heard and that we are properly seen, so to speak. So I think you'll enjoy some of these very practical tips from Noah Oldham. And I think what you'll love best is his own personal story. So hang on to the very end. Uh, you'll be so blessed by what you hear. So let's get right to it, shall we? Here's my interview with Noah Oldham on this episode of Neighbors and Nations. Welcome today to the podcast, uh, Neighbors and Nations. So glad you've joined us, and I'm glad today to have Noah Oldham with us uh, from St. Louis. Is that correct, Noah? Yeah, St. Louis, Missouri. All right, man. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm glad you joined us. Yeah, man. Glad to be here with you. Honored. Hey, I know we've only met a few times. We've talked uh, as well a few times. You've spoken here for our preachers uh, conference in which we train uh, guys how to preach. And I've really enjoyed your ministry. And so I've been anxious to kind of just pick your brain about this topic of neighbors and nations. And I want to start by ask, having you uh, maybe give us just a brief Noah Oldham history, because I'm, I'm intrigued by how much God has used you and how much favor he's shown upon you for such a young man. So give us a little Noah Oldham background real, real quickly. Well, first of all, I'm thankful that you consider me a young man. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, but but I grew up in a uh, the home of a Christian mother and a non-Christian father. Uh, my dad was an atheist most of my life, not only self-proclaimed, but but lived lived out atheism in the sense of we couldn't even talk about Jesus in our home without a fight being started. But my mom uh, loved the Lord. Uh, she was kind of a product of a Christian home and then the Jesus movement when she was a young adult and just loved Jesus ferociously. My mom got sick with an autoimmune disease when I was nine or 10 years old. So I watched my mom suffer for the next 15 years from a kidney disease that eventually took her life. And it was during those formative years that God was pursuing me. And my mom would always remind me that uh, gold was refined in the fire and that God was taking me through a lot of trials early in life have to wrestle through faith and wrestle through answers uh, so that I could be used by God in a u- unique way. And though I have two other brothers, and I'm sure she had similar conversations with them, she seemed to have special conversations with me, um, come from a more of a charismatic background, and she really believed the Lord had his hand on my life. 
Um, but it wasn't until I was 17 that I surrendered to Jesus. My mom got sick when I was 10. I told God I hated him because he was taking my mom from me. Uh, but the Lord and his kindness pursued me all throughout my teenage years. And he kept me. He guarded me very, very well from a lot of mistakes. And uh, at 17, he pursued me. And I can still take you to the carpet square where at Camp Oxford in Rudiman, Illinois, I sat and I considered the cost. And I got up from that carpet square, uh, fully sen- surrendered to the Lord Jesus. And then uh, a year later, when I went away to school, went away to college, um, had a very distinct and unique experience with the Lord in my, my college dorm room. Um, I was hurt during football season. I was a football player and uh, the Lord met me in my dorm room and called me to give my life to him, to tell people about Jesus um, every which way I could. Wow. You know, I didn't know any of that, but, but that's uh, amazing. And it is very uh, God centered. Does your dad ever become a Christian? Oh man. Yes, he has. So, Oh, so listen to this. My mom, a year before she died, spoke at a women's conference and I have the audio recording on a CD. Someone saved it for me. And she said that when she went, when she got sick, she wanted to be healed. And she, my mom went to every, every crusade, every, everything, you know, just in case something would work. And, um, finally got to a place where she didn't feel like maybe the Lord was going to heal her. She wanted him to, but in case he didn't, she said, Lord, I want three things from you. I want to raise my boys. I want to see them all become men. Um, that got to happen. She died. Um, she died after I married my wife, my brother, had just graduated from college, but he hadn't got gotten married yet. But my mom met the woman that he was going to marry. Number two, uh, I want all of my, um, I want my, I want, oh, sorry. Number two is I want you to save my husband. And number three is I want my life to matter beyond the grave. And I have a testimony sermon that I share about my mom, my mom's story. So my dad is um, my whole life atheist at my mom's funeral. Well, before the funeral, I came home. She died on a Sunday night. I was in Florida flew home Monday night. It's late October, um, October 30th. And we're on my dad's front porch and I'm outside in a sweatshirt. He's got just a t-shirt and he's just sitting out there. I remember because he's just shivering. It was the first time my dad sat still and quiet long enough for me to share the gospel with him because he was always just very angry about it. Don't talk with me about Jesus. And he just sat there and wept because his wife of 35 years had just died. And, uh, he listened, didn't say much. And then Thursday was the funeral. I'm sitting next to my dad. My mom knew she was dying. She Five years before, she'd been given a prognosis to live six months, 50% chance to live six months. She lived five years beyond that. So she planned her own funeral. And one of the songs she picked out was I Know My Redeemer Lives by Nicole C. Mullins, one of her favorite songs. One of the girls I went to high school with, one of my best friends, she was there. She sang it. She's in the middle of that song and I'm sitting there. We're all crying because it's mom's favorite song and something moves next to me. And I look and I have to look up because my dad is no longer sitting. My dad is standing and he has his arms in the air and he has tears streaming down his face. And I don't know what to do. So I look at my brothers and they're looking at me and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And I just said, just pray, just pray. So we all just start, we're praying there in the front row. Song ends, dad sits down. I said, dad, what's going on? He looks at me straight in the eyes and said, I just gave my life to Jesus. Man, that's powerful. And then we carry, like, so my dad used to always mock my mom and say, the day that God healed, the day that your God heals you, I'll believe in him. The day your God heals you. Well, after that funeral, my brothers, my dad, my uncle and I, we carried her body and we laid it in the ground. And it was saying, finally, like, 
God is not healing her in this life. And it was on that day that dad had always mocked her like that day when there was no more chance of that happening. God said, I will save you regardless of what you think. And my dad now, uh, let's see, that was 2007, 13 years almost. So this October will be 13 years. My dad's been a growing Christian. I mean, I've discipled him for 13 years. He loves Jesus. And Todd, one of the most hurtful things ever happened in my life was when God called me, that testimony of God calling me into ministry, my dad found out. And my dad told my mom that I was wasting my life and that he was so disappointed because I was like, I was my, both my brothers are great dudes, but I was like the smart one in school and all those things. And dad was like, he's going to do it. He's going to be the one to accomplish this great thing. He's like, he threw it all away on religion. He threw it all away on a God that I don't even believe in. And um, one of the most powerful pictures in my life is when I planted August gate, the first night, the launch night, uh, I meet my dad at the bottom of the steps where we're meeting and my dad just hugs me and he whispers in my ear, you're doing exactly what God called you to do. I, I just, I lost it. Man. I lost it. Cause it was like all of these emotions wrapped up. So yeah, dad loves the Lord. And um, mom's testimony continues to be preached everywhere. And so uh, mom got all three requests. She asked the Lord of. She sure did. Yeah. Share this with me and our listeners. What, what are some neighbors that God used in your story? I mean, between 10 and 17, let's say, you know, yes. friends or people nearby you that, that God used to bring you close to the gospel. Obviously your mom. Yeah. My mom was one of them. My mom prayed for me all the time. So she was on kidney dialysis three times a week after she would teach school, she'd go to the dialysis center and she'd sit there and grade papers and then pray. And my mom prayed and prayed and prayed for me and prayed for my dad and prayed for my brothers. And, but also my grandparents, my, my mom's parents were followers of the Lord. and They did a lot of helping and raising us during those years. Finances were hard because of medical bills and they, they did a lot of raising and they spoke the gospel into our lives. But, but our church, I grew up in a church where uh, they just really lived it out. And so I saw Jesus all the time and I heard about Jesus all the time. And uh, the Sunday school teachers that poured in and the youth group leaders that poured in and the opportunities they, they put in front of me. I mean, I, I really didn't have to wrestle with the reality of, if God is real. I was so convinced. I was just not convinced yet that he was good or that he loved me because of the circumstances I was walking through. And it took, it took God's spirit opening my heart to that, to realize it. Uh, but my older brother, he got saved when he was uh, young in high school at another church in our local community. And even the touches there, that church, that the First Baptist Church of El Dorado reaching out and allowing me to participate in things and just having relationships with people there. So and it's all over the place, man. Just story after story. My my youth pastor, my first youth pastor, he's the one who's under his ministry. He discipled me and taught me the word of God. And when I was sent off to college, I met a guy my first day on the college football field. The guy who timed me in the 40-yard dash was the most passionate follower of Jesus I'd ever met to that point. And God had me meet him first on that campus. And he discipled me. In fact, he went on to be my sending church pastor when I planted August Gate. So God just used all kinds of things. I mean, as you said, neighbors and nations, God just did so much, used so many neighbors uh, to to bring me to himself and then to train me to, to be sent. Well, that had to have an effect on you as far as forming in you some of this passion that I see, uh, some of the desire to like tell as many folks as you can about Christ. Give me a little bit uh, more about, I think you said when you first went to college and God just said, hey, I want to call you to tell, so to speak. Yeah. Give us some more insight into that. Where does that passion come from? Well, I'll tell you what, when I when I was sent from my church, Little Chapel Church, um, it was a tiny church out in the middle of the country, about 80 people in 1989 when I started going there with my, my mom. So where exactly and is this place? It's called Raleigh, Illinois. 
Uh, Raleigh is a town of um, 350 people. Uh, one wow. census, one census they took, somebody has put one of those, those postal numbers on it over the zero because there's 351 people. Um, but it, it was outside of Raleigh in the middle of nowhere, literally, uh, southeastern Illinois. And God took this 80-person, 90-person church and through prayer, he asked the, the lead pastor there for 28 years, I think, uh, what, what God did. He said, we just prayed. And he was right. They just prayed and it grew from 80 to a few hundred and a few hundred, many hundred, and they ended up building it a fourth building. And it was, it now is a sanctuary that could seat 3000 at max capacity because God gave them the vision to reach a tithe of their County, 25,000 people in the County of uh, Southeastern Illinois there. Uh, but when I saw God do that, I, I saw it with my very eyes, I saw him reach this County and this church to grow. And they did it without any fanfare. The pastor wore a white t-shirt and blue jeans every day to the office. And if the toilet was clogged, he unclogged it. And we were out there when I was in college, a brand new Christian building this building. And I was down in the holes, digging out the dirt that the backhoe had left behind. We were participating in the building of this building and participating in the kingdom. When they sent me to college, they sent me as a missionary. They laid hands on me. They prayed for me. And I remember the, the kind of the commissioning they gave me that, that God would cause me to go to this college campus that was very liberal in, um, in theology, and I would just burn for Christ, and people would come to know him. So I went on a mission, and when I got hurt in football and I couldn't go to practice, I just decided I'm a, I've been a Christian for about a year. I was totally saved. I was excited about the Lord Jesus when all my friends were getting less excited as they went to college and like, oh, I finally can do my own thing. Don't have to go to church and Sunday school, I decided to spend my free time evangelizing. And instead of going, for, this, is, this is funny to tell the story this way, but instead of going for like the low hanging fruit, like my college classmates, I went for my college professors. So <laughs> I went to share the gospel with my atheist anthropology professor, Dr. Troop. First week of class, she just, she kind of told us, hey, like God doesn't exist and religion is a myth and all these things. And I, I was like, she's target number one. So I scheduled a meeting and I shared the gospel. And I think I was pretty convincing in my apologetic arguments that I used. I used all these things that my, my uncle, one of my pastors had taught me about the existence of Christ and, and the empty tomb. And I came back to email my mom about it. She was my spiritual leader. I was emailing her on that T one line for the first time, blazing fast internet speed, I thought. (laughs) And in the middle of this email, I'm typing the words, mom, you just had to be there. It was so amazing what God did. She's not saved yet, but she's going to be. I just want to tell. And when I typed the words, I just want to tell, kid you not, as best as, as I can explain it, the spirit of God showed up in my dorm room and I couldn't lift my head off my desk. I sat there and just wept under the power of God's presence. And he just showed me in my mind's eye, all the plans that I had made, I was going to be a lawyer or a doctor. Both my brothers are doctors. I was going to be one or the other. I wanted to make all this money. I wanted to cure cancer or, or do something crazy. The Lord just showed me, I, you've been making all these plans apart from me and I've got a better plan for you. And all I heard was, I want to tell, I want to tell, I want to tell. And he told me, you're going to tell, you're going to spend the rest of your life telling people about Jesus. And um, I'm, I lived in a college dorm with all football players. So my dorms rooms open and people are walking by and I can't move. I can't move. All I can do is cry on my keyboard. And then about a half an hour later, so this, this was 930 in the morning on October 26, 2001, about a half an hour later, I'm up and the kind of the moment ends and I just finished my email to my mom. I'm like, you don't know what just happened, but this just happened. 
I got home that summer from college and all my pastors had heard about what had happened and they immediately took me under their wing and said, we're going to, we're going to train you. And that's what they did. And so much of that began with that commissioning prayer. I love that story. Uh, Blend. let's camp here for a moment. That's an interesting blend of a church in a rural area, probably with a, uh, a really good focus on its neighbors. You said they wanted to get 10% of their county, right? Yeah. A tithe of the county. I believe God yeah. said a tithe of the county. And yet they're sending you out. There's, they're giving you the sense like, man, uh, you've got greater things, bigger things. Like I just love a church where they're embracing both of those. They're sending people. They've done it over the years, man. I mean, all the, these several young men that have left that church uh, for ministry opportunities, not because like there was no opportunity there. Like I was on staff there when God called me to plant. I came back from college. I was a youth pastor. In many ways, I was kind of the pastor in waiting. They thought, hey, Noah's, my senior pastor actually said that. Hey, eight to 10 years from now, I'm going to be irrelevant. I think you're the next guy. And I took that to the Lord. And when I did, I got, I got sick, physically ill that night because, and then as I prayed, the Lord showed me, I don't have eight to 10 years for you to sit around and wait. Like I'm calling you out. And it was like three months later, we were leaving to go plant a church. It was crazy how God used that, but they were, they were ascending church. I have several friends that grew up with me there that are all doing ministry at the corners of the globe. Because they said, let's raise them up. Let's send them out. God, God wants to reach the world. And we tend to think of those places being the prominent, you know, uh, celebrity churches and pastors. Yeah. And you're talking about one in the middle of nowhere, a guy in jeans and a t-shirt no one's heard of. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you, people, they were the fastest growing General Baptist churches, General Baptist denomination, fastest growing for like 10 years straight. We had the plaques on the wall in the hallway. Uh, they would send us and the, everybody wanted my pastor, Jeff Rush, to come preach at conferences. And he would just tell them, no, he's like, I have nothing really? to say besides we just prayed is nothing fancy. And they did, man. That's another story for another podcast. But the prayer ministry there uh, of even the unorganization of it at times, just the people literally prayed. They begged God to show up. I would come into the sanctuary on Sunday mornings uh, before church started, get my Sunday school lesson ready. I was a high school Sunday school teacher as a youth pastor. I'd come in the back door, which was the front of the sanctuary, and I'd come through, and my, as my eyes would adjust to the dark, I would hear with my ears whispers, and I would see figures on, at the altar, and there were men and women that had been there since before the sun came up, on their knees, begging for God to show up that morning and save somebody, and God saved lots of people, wow. and I believe it was the prayers of his people, these saints that just loved God and loved their neighbors and said, we want to reach them, God, we're begging you to give us souls. You know, there's something to be said for that in light of, what is it, Luke 10 to? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That church uh, knew it before it was a slogan for a T-shirt or a bracelet, didn't they? <laughs> they, did. they did, man. They did. They, 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 they pled and they begged and God's still doing great things there. My, my family, um, half my family are members at that church and yeah, God's doing great things. Well, that really helps me understand more about some of the passion I've watched in you for a few years. Um, I, I know you may not consider yourself young. You've got how many kids right now, Noah? I've got five. Five kids. You're married. You uh, you probably feel older than you actually are. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. looking at you, I just see God has really favored you in early on and in a great way. And hearing those stories, I can see why. I mean, to go out at what? Or you when you planted? 20-something? I was 26. Yeah, that's, a, that's pretty early for a church planner. Uh, but yeah. man, God had his hand on you. Uh, you had a heart for, for neighbors. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really brings a lot of perspective. I think currently you wear two hats, right? You're not just pastoring August Gate. Is that correct? You also work with the North American Mission Board? Yeah. So I'm the lead pastor of August Gate. We're now 11 years old at the end of August. 
um, here in the St. Louis area. And then I recently, back in March, actually the the first day that coronavirus really broke out, I stepped into a new position, the senior director of church planter deployment for the North American Mission Board and SEND Network. And so tell me how those complement each other. Yeah, so my role really is trying to help us build and perpetuate the culture of the SEND Network. The SEND Network, we have three core values, family, multiplication, restoration. We want to see every church planted by the North American Mission Board through partner churches, through SBC churches. We want to see those church plants have that DNA within them. We want to help bring them into the network and then care for them really well. So my role is to help lead a team that, brings new planters in and orients them to our DNA and to our culture, our core values as a network that cares for them throughout the course of time uh, that they're with us in those first five years, especially, and then continues to help them perpetuate this movement of the gospel through their own church by encouraging them and training them ongoing through those first early years of what it looks like to be a church that cares about family multiplication and the restorative work of the gospel in their city. And so obviously August Gates a laboratory, so to speak, to give that really out. I think I got to step into that role because um, I, I served as a Send City missionary for a number of years since 2011 until recently. I was the SCM here. And what that means is when it first started the strategy to reach some of these strategic cities across North America, they needed somebody um, to kind of organize those things and, and bring people together and, and really own the strategy out of a local church and in a context. And August Gate is all about that. So you mentioned Luke 10 too. That's our vision verse. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. I grew up in a farming community. August is the month the fall harvest starts. St. Louis is the gateway city. Harvest the city, August Gate. That's where we got our name. And so it made sense when Nam was looking for somebody to have a vision for the whole city. Our vision statement is to see the St. Louis metro region saturated with gospel-centered missional churches that send churches to the ends of the earth. So I was like, I'd love to volunteer, but I'm this new guy. I didn't start SBC. I came into SBC when I planted. And so nobody knows me. I'm from a cornfield in southeastern Illinois, from a church that nobody's heard of, really, and um, had that passion. So got to lead things in St. Louis for the last uh, almost decade and just help other guys plant and encourage them in their journey. So it really is, it's been a laboratory. We've, we've either sent out or have been one of the lead partners in planting eight churches in St. Louis in the course of about 11 years. And I mean, it's been, it's been amazing. It's been hard. It's been sacrificial. It's been, um, yeah, it's been heart, heart aching in, in one sense, but it's also been heart filling in another sense. Any ways in which those two roles perhaps conflict, and I'm kind of poking here a little bit. I don't want you to feel like I'm assuming there is, but yeah, that's that's two really big hats to wear. Do you ever yeah. feel conflict between them or maybe brought about by them? Yeah, I think the, the, the conflict is some days it's just, I have so much I want to accomplish. I have so much I want to do, not because I feel this burden that I've got to do it, but I really, Todd, I really love Jesus. When he saved me, I just, I just, I, I'm overwhelmed by the sense of just gratitude and he deserves my life in Romans 12, one and two. I want to give my life as a living sacrifice. I think the conflict is at the end of most weeks, I don't feel like I had enough hours to accomplish all that the Lord was worthy of. And so I've had to struggle over the years of being able to put down my work and say enough's enough for today. Enough's enough for this week. My family needs me. My, my local church needs me. And so that's, I think if there's any conflict, it's that, but it complements so well 
And God's given me a great team at NAM that serves with me and a great team at my church that serves with me that really, most of the time, it flows really, really well. Revisit for me that statement you made earlier. You said that Luke 2, uh, 10, 2 is your vision verse, but you made the statement that the goal is to plant churches or saturate the city with uh, missional churches that go to the nations or something like that. How do you word that? Yes, you know, so to saturate the St. Louis metro region with gospel center missional churches that then send churches to the ends of the earth. And that's that's so uh, neighbor and nation focused, bro. That's really awesome there. I love that. I got to steal that. Well, man, I think that's the gospel. I mean, that's that's when I was I was saved in a charismatic leaning church. And so when we talked about the Great Commission. The Great Commission was always the one we pulled from was always Acts 1 8. It wasn't Matthew 28. Oh, okay. Matthew 28. So when I pull from, obviously, it's the foundation, but then Acts 1-8, you will receive power, and then it's Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And so I believe that, you know, Matthew 28 gives us this image of we are making disciples, how? By bringing them into a new relationship with Jesus Christ, making that, like, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey Jesus. And then what Jesus says in Acts 1-8 is, you're going to go. And so it is here, there, and everywhere. And uh, we want to be a part of that. I mean, a few years ago, we had, we were planting churches in St. Louis. We're seeing God do amazing things. And we just got a burden as our elders of our church that we looked, as I looked at, at, at uh, Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, the, the two images of the throne room of God and all these nations, I, I realized there ain't going to be anybody around that throne because of us unless we get to work in the nations. So God, give us give us opportunity. And by God's grace, we have now have missionaries um, in four different places around the world that were sent out of our church. And there's more to come this coming year. Like, we're so excited about that uh, because we just realized the job's not done. And I think that's, that's the hard part for me. Again, like I said, that's the challenge. The job's never done. And I can often push myself too hard, but I also feel like we can rest in that. The job's not done. Like we've done something great, but God has more. So don't get don't get lulled to sleep. Don't get apathetic. God has more for your life. Ask him for it and he'll do it. Yeah. Take us into that laboratory now then. Because I love what you said about you've sent some folks to the mission field, which yeah. means outside of this uh, area. You've yeah. planted uh, churches. I know you were just telling me earlier about a granddaughter church is already being planted. So what did you do in those early days to keep neighbors and nations in the view of your people? Give us some practical like hands-on tips for, for pastors listening or even for church members. Yeah, so you mentioned it there, church members. I think that covenant membership is really the mechanism that begins all of this for a church plant and even a church. A lot of times membership can just be, hey, I attend here. I don't really go anywhere, but if I go somewhere, I go here. Membership for us is very, it's the first level of leadership and it's very, very important. We do a membership class and we have a membership covenant and that class teaches our vision. And so it keeps me preaching our vision on a regular basis. It's fresh on my lips. It's fresh in my mind. It's making its way into sermons all the time. Um, keeping our name, because our name is so weird, August Gate, we have to explain it all the time. And so we're explaining the vision every time we share it. We bring members in. They hear, this is who we are, and this is what we're about. Here's also what we're not and what we're not about. We're not about creating a buffet where you can come and consume from based on your own preferences. We have a mission and vision given to us specifically by God for a specific thing. Join us in that. And so people get that. So from the very beginning, we tell people we're about multiplying disciples. For instance, we, all of our covenant members, they, they covenant to a number of things. One of those is being a part of a small group. And we've always said, we believe every small group is a church planting in the making, meaning you go to your part of the community 
and you reach your neighbors. And as you reach your neighbors, your small group's going to multiply. And as many small groups multiply in a region of our city, that is the foundation for a church planting team, a launch team right there. That's it. And we told our people that, and then we did it. When we, we, we told them it was one thing, but then when we did it, they're like, oh, this is for real. You're a part of August Gate. Like, <laughs> this is, this is going to happen. And we would bring in church planting residents, either raise them up from the inside. We have one of our very first core team members, one of our pastoral staff guys. He was one of our first church plants. We also brought guys from the outside to plant. And as we did that, we just continued to say, we care about church planting. We care about sending. This is what we're going to do. Um, our budget, we, we budget money to throw out there, not to keep in here, to give to church planting specifically. We do Planter Sunday where we bring church planters in to preach. And they're guys that we continue to pray for and their pictures are on the screen and we know what they're doing. We promote it on social media. This is what we're about. Um, so we keep that mission and vision in front of them all the time, all the time. And um, I think that's the number one thing. Your members have got to buy into that. It can't be the pastor's pet project. It's got to be the church's mission. Yeah, that's, that's some good, really practical steps for people who are listening. That's, that's excellent. Um, what do you think has been an obstacle, maybe an answer from this angle, maybe for you and August Gate in keeping neighbors and nations front and center? Or maybe what do you think is an obstacle for young churches that you've planted? Maybe just speak to that for a minute, would you? Yeah, it's that balance, Todd. I think of of the sending and the staying, the the pouring out resources out there, but keeping enough resources here that things are healthy. And there was, I remember a time about six years in, seven years in, someone asked me, um, somebody high up uh, said in in our denominational leadership said, "Hey, at what point are you guys going to be self sustaining?" I said, "We could have been self sustaining five years ago, but we keep giving people and money away." to do other things. So we're still not, we still need partners to accomplish this mission because it's so much bigger than we can accomplish on our own. And I think that was the kind of the tension we lived in for a long time. We got in this building in South city that needed all kinds of renovations. We could say, Hey, we can either buy new carpet or we could spend $15,000 on this new church plant. Let's send $15,000 to the church plant because he's going to make disciples and the carpet here is just going to make us feel a little bit more comfortable. And there was always that, that balance and that tension. So I would say, I would, I would encourage pastors and planters to think through is making sure you do that balance well, because there were times where members would come and say, Hey, we don't feel cared enough for like, we, we want to be able to invite our people, our neighbors, our coworkers into something. And, and we realized that, yeah, everything adorns the gospel and we could be lying about the gospel. If the, the temperature is like really, really bad and the accommodations are really, really bad. And there's no bathrooms that feel accessible. I mean, our, our first building, we had a one, one stall for men and one stall for women in separate rooms and they weren't heated or air conditioned because it's such an old building. And so you knew if somebody sat down in the winter to use the restroom, because you may, may hear them yell from the other room because it was so cold. But it, one summer we were doing a building project. And the only working bathroom was a porter potty out in the parking lot. It was oh, just like, my goodness. So it's that balance of, of, of the sending resources and people, and also making sure that the church that is sending is healthy enough to continue to do that for the long run. In those early days, though, I don't know if you experienced this ever, but in those early days, there is a sense of pioneering Oh yeah, that you could, uh, you begin to miss as your church ages, and even as the pastor ages, you, you kind of long for some of those very agile, flexible days when you can turn on a dime, you know? That's right. I remember somebody telling us that one time there at a big established church, they said, we're like a, um, like a yacht or a, like a, like a cruise ship. 
it takes a long time for us to make an adjustment. You guys are like a fishing boat. You can turn in a moment. I'm like, <laughs> thanks for telling us how small we are. But we were. We we're yeah. agile. But there's beauty in that. There you're is. Very agile, you're flexible. Yeah, some of those stories. You know, it's hard to balance um, those two things. You called them sending and staying. Um, however you word them, it is t- difficult to think about the person who's uh, looking for a really clean, accessible child care or nursery or yes. a bathroom that doesn't smell. I mean, those are things that you, some of you want to say, hey, that doesn't matter. But in one sense, for neighbors, it probably does. Yeah. And you think about nations and and over there, they might even have a bathroom in some right. of these unreached places. So it is a, a life of balance for pastors. And uh, I appreciate what you said about young churches. If you start, if you avoid those tough conversations initially and you don't have a focus on the nations to start with, it's very hard to work it in later because you've built around you a people who like the comfort aspects. Yeah. Yeah. So that was wise to say, start this way. Um, you mentioned that you let it uh, infiltrate your preaching a lot. Now I know also that uh, you do this for us and we're very effective. You help uh, preachers with their preaching. Yeah. Uh, you have some things you've developed called a preaching standard, I believe, which I really enjoyed learning about. Help us on this one. Help pastors who are listening. How can they help the idea of, um, not help, but how can they bring neighbors and nations into their preaching in a way that doesn't sound like they're just pushing for a program or it's their obligatory, you know, mention. Yeah. Yeah, So I think the same gift, um, the, the number one gift of, of the preaching pastor of that role it's the same gift that's used in many different ways. It's used in fundraising as a church planter. It's used in gathering a core team. It's used in evangelism and getting lost people to actually show up to what you're doing. It's used in preaching. It's the ability to, to cast a compelling vision. So much of preaching is that. I think there's a difference in preaching and teaching, and what we do on Sunday should be a combination of both. Preaching, however, for me is very prophetic, not in the sense of telling the future, but instead of giving a clear picture of what God is saying, of what God is doing right now, that kind of prophetic. And when when that is uh, when preaching is happening that way, it is casting a compelling vision. Now, our preaching needs to be biblical, and the biblical vision that God gives us is unmistakable. It is reaching the lost as we are doing what we're doing to be disciples and make more disciples. So if Matthew 28, the great commission is part of my preaching standard is I am, I'm preaching in such a way to make new Christians. I want to want to compel them to follow Christ. And so I can baptize them and initiate them into the gospel. And then I'm going to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded and that obedience, that following Jesus is the path of the cross, which laying your life down for others and seeing more people come. It always ends with other people hearing. It's the, I use a formula hear, believe and obey. I want to preach in such a way that people hear the word of God. They believe the word of God and then they obey the word of God. And that's going to have specificity when it comes to that text and what it means. But then it goes beyond that to uh, our three rhythms of our church, we say, are growing to know, love, and follow Jesus together by his grace. So as I preach, I want people to, to know Jesus and then love Jesus and then follow him. And that following, I just can't find a place where Jesus says anywhere that following him isn't making more disciples. It all leads to that. And then you get people the compelling vision of what the Bible gives, where we're going. It's the church victorious. It's the church reaching every continent. Paul said it. Jesus said it. I quoted this last Sunday. Like, we are not in a holding pattern. Even in the midst of this pandemic, I feel like every day somebody's asking, 
like what book or what chapter of Revelation are we in this week with all that's going on? Um, but the compelling vision that we have that Jesus says, like this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all people, to all nations, and then the end will come. Like we're not in a holding pattern. We're in a delivery strategy right now. And so I would say like in preaching for a guy to preach biblically, he has to preach the evangelistic go and tell others. It's just not complete until we've done that. And that's very helpful. And I want to encourage those who are listening who are involved in regular preaching. You said more than just casting vision. And sometimes that is a that can be a burden to a guy who might not be like a prophetic type of person in some sense. But sure. I like your distinction was much more healthy than just casting vision. It was casting a biblical vision. And perhaps, Noah, maybe comment on this. I wonder if sometimes, just thinking this through even out loud with you right now, I wonder if perhaps one of the reasons too many pastors aren't letting their sermons drip with mission, whether neighbors or nations, is because maybe they don't even see the biblical vision of this Revelation 5, Revelation 7. Maybe that's it's just very convicting in the moment. I think you're right. Yeah, I'm preaching through the book of Colossians right now. And Colossians is, I love all of the word of God, but it's one of the most power packed places. And it begins with such a robust Christology. Mm. It's, it's here's who Jesus is from the very beginning. Here's who he is. And then here's what he's done. And I think when we keep that in front of us, the gospel in front of us every day, it leads itself to that. I mean, he uses three chapters in Colossians to tell us who Christ is, what he's done, what the gospel means for our lives. But then chapter four, it's all about now, now have wisdom with outsiders, let your, your, your speech be seasoned with salt and gracious. And he assumes that we are praying. And he says, pray also for us that, that a door may be open to the gospel, that we may be clear as we ought to speak. Paul assumes that when we get the robust Christology and what it means for our lives, it's going to turn outward. He just assumes it because mm-hmm. he knows what the gospel did, did in him and all the people. He even says in the beginning of Colossians, it's bearing fruit as it does everywhere that it's preached. And so I think that that's it. And I would encourage pastors in the midst of the grind, in the midst of the ministry, the difficulty, the sheep with teeth, all this stuff, is you've got to spend time before the Lord in prayer, in worship, getting a biblical vision of who he is and what he wants for your life. Amen. If you do that on a regular basis, that passion doesn't wane in the pulpit. Yeah, it just flows. Yeah, amen. Hey, what's what's uh, hard to you about, and I use the air quotes here, but what's hard to you about normal witnessing? We've, we've said a lot of things in this podcast, and maybe someone's thinking, man, I'm not a Noah Oldham, though. I'll never have that kind of passion or opportunity, but yet I'm sure you have your own set of struggles. What's oh, the hardest thing to you about normal witnessing? So I, I often tell people I'm the most insecure person that I know. Um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm so insecure. I walk around with it. It's the thing that that shackles me from so many things and so many relationships. The hardest thing about um, normal witnessing for me doing it on a regular basis, I believe honestly is the opportunity. I spend not near enough time with non-Christians. Um, I just don't, I, I'm, I'm all day long with planters all day long with church strategy. I'm shepherding people, uh, my family. Um, I'm around a couple of lost people every day cause not all of my children profess Christ yet. <laughs> um, but and I'm, I'm also introverted. It may not come up, come through in a podcast from my preaching, but I'm, I'm very introverted in the sense I, when I'm with people, I'm drained of energy and then I need to be by myself to recoup energy. And that keeps me often from 
from saying it's time to go. It's time to be around lost people. Cause you get me in a conversation with somebody. I, I am totally fine with sharing the gospel with them, especially one-on-one. Um, I love to be in an Uber or especially the uh, enterprise rent a car. Cause they pick you up. And I know that I've got the time from when they pick me up to share the gospel. And then when I come back and drop my car off, they're going to drop me off back at home. It's often the same person or over a course of many months, I'll get to talk with a person again. So I'll get to bring it up again. Hey, did you think about what we talked about? Let me invite you again to come to church. And so for me, it's, it's the the access. And so I've had to say, no, a carve out time and make sure that you use the rhythms of your life as mission. So we've told our family baseball, we do a lot of baseball. My son's really good and he really loves it. And it's an undertaking, but we said, this is going to be our mission field. And then by God's grace, even this last weekend, we spent some time over the weekend with some families who don't know Jesus and conversations about Christ are coming up like never before. So I'd say access, get around people who don't know Christ. And you're, you recognize that that's not easy. So you're intentional. Uh, You're voicing that to your children, to you and your wife are agreeing, Hey, we got to make this about this. So I think that avoids the, passive approach as well when you recognize i'm not good at this normally i've got to be more intentional yeah i hear that as well we've got lots of kids and we know that we're going to live a busy life and when we developed a pattern of family worship we've we did it around the rhythms of our church of gather grow go so we gather around the gospel on sundays we, we grow in gospel communities throughout the week and we go um, on corporate mission and we said as a family we want to gather so we do family worship on a regular basis we want to go and so we do discipleship dates with each of our children over the age of five or five and over. And then we go on mission. And when we do is we talk about praying and playing um, as we go on mission as a family. So on the way to baseball practice, we often pray for the teammates um, and then we're going to have fun. We're going to show people that it is a good thing to know the Lord that, you know, I was just on, um, I was on a float trip and I, I made the conversation with these, these folks. I just said it because they wanted it to be awkward. And it was funny because they all know me now. I said, uh, I don't want to be the pastor that you all think that your your time is is uh, is killed on the beer drinking float trip. So I'm here I'm here to make this this party even better. And what's great about it is like they know I'm a teetotaler. They know that I I talk like a preacher and I act like a preacher. And uh, but they all love me as a friend and they're talking to me about Christ in the midst of this. And so it's bizarre to me. But I've told my kids we're going to go in and we're going to be the salt of the earth. We're not going to be, um, we're not going to be the, the, the sourness of the earth. We're not going to go in and make people be like, mm, I don't want to be around them. We want, just as scripture says in Colossians 4, we want our, our, our language to be seasoned with salt so people receive it as a gift. They want to talk to us. They want to hear from us. So even if I, like I did this last week and I shared some with the guy some really hard things about his marriage, it's not going to get better unless the Lord comes in and you repent of these things. He received it as a gift, even though he doesn't know the Lord yet. He received it as, man, you love me and you want the best for me. I love that word yet. I love that in your heart. Yeah. Uh, we say around here a lot of times, who is a yet to be believer that you can pray for? Instead of saying mm-hmm. who's an unbeliever or who's lost, which are true words. We have been learning to say who's a yet to be believer. And I hear that in your heart too, man. That's great. That's vision casting, Todd. That's it. It's those little yeah. nuances that cast vision to people. And we might not even recognize mm-hmm. what God can do and what he wants to do. Hey, uh, there may be some folks who want to connect with you, maybe a question, even maybe some folks who want to disengage with you, maybe about parenting or maybe some things you've even just briefly mentioned about how you go about things. What's the best way for someone to connect with you? Yeah, so I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter uh, at Noah Oldham, uh, Facebook as well. Go to Facebook and, and uh, look me up there. It's again, 
at Noah Oldham on Facebook. Um, if you want to email me, Noah at augustgate.com. I'd love to get those emails and be able to, to connect back and forth on what the Lord might be doing in your life. And if I can be helpful. Man, I appreciate that. A guy that wears a lot of hats, but thanks for that humility and just accessibility, even to folks that you don't even know right now. Amen. So, uh, I don't know yet. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's right. Hey, Noah, thanks for your time. I uh, This has been a, uh, a gold mine of conversation just because I think uh, we got a chance to peek into your heart and I loved your testimony. I didn't know any of that. And yet I can see how that just really weighed into giving you such passion for ministry right now. It's been very encouraging and motivating. And thank you so much for the opportunity. And I pray it's helpful for those who are listening. Thanks for listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. To learn more about how to support this podcast and our partners, go to toddstyles.net slash podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app.